And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The race is on, and there are potentially seismic shifts afoot in Formula One with talk of VW Group entering when the next generation engine is introduced. But despite agreement in principle to drop the MGUH, there's still a political battle raging in the background. I'm Ed Straw, and joining me to delve into F1's engine fight are Scott Mitchell and Mark Hughes. Well, Scott, how are you doing? Back from Monza and uh, in a brief moment before you head off for Sochi. Yeah, I'm 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 good. I'm uh, I'm on top of everything I need to be on top of between the races. I've got my Russian visa application in process, so hopefully no last minute scares there. And may I just say, Ed, I'd like to compliment you on your flawless introduction to this podcast, which is absolutely definitely the first time you tried to record it. Yeah, we don't do a single edit in the podcast. It's always perfectly delivered. So thank you for confirming to everyone that if you look behind the curtain, it is all brilliantly executed. Certainly didn't happen a few times. Uh, Mark Hughes, hello. Um, I want to share this with the listeners because before I started embarking on my poorly executed introductions, I was asking you about the uh, the poster in the background we could see a, a, a fraction of. Some some classic racing uh, racing art, shall we say. Yeah, it's from the 1925 Winterfart, which is the uh, the winter races at the Nürburgring. It's got a nice illustration of a um, a Merck SSK on there, uh, which we were speculating might be Adolf Rosenberger, but it's not really specified. It's just an artistic impression. I like the idea of Nürburgring having winter races. It just seems just seems to be inviting trouble, given that even when you go there in peak summer, there's a good chance you'll get hail or snow. <laughs> yeah, and you know, driving an SSK on, on the snow, I'm, I'm sure is, is perfectly fine. <laughs> Absolutely, that's the kind of gimmick F1 needs now. More snow races. That's uh, that's a, a, a good idea. I, I have driven in a hail shower in testing. That was quite uh, that was quite enjoyable at Cadwell Park of all places as well. But uh, low grip, as you might imagine. Uh, well, let's get on to something a little bit more relevant than me driving around Cadwell Park, Scott. So, simple question: What's going on? 
the MGUH was talked of as something that would be dropped when F1 was first talking about the next-gen engines quite some time ago. Then the manufacturers argued it back in, but now it seems it's set to be dropped. Can you please explain? Yeah, well, there's there's a couple of things to, to understand. The first is that there is general agreement and alignment among the engine manufacturers that the V6 turbo hybrids have got too complicated, they're too complex, they're too expensive. They're, uh, it's got to a point now where it's all prohibitively so in terms of new manufacturers coming in. So they're, they're in a, it's a situation now where for both existing engine manufacturers in Formula One and potential new ones, there's a mutual interest in cutting costs in the past when uh, when there was the potential to drop the MGUH before the new regulations would have only been I guess in their I think in their fourth season when it was a bit because it was late 2017 when the FIA released its plan to change the power units and the idea was to have a new power unit in 2021 that didn't have the MGUH was more uh, was simpler internally it was going to be cheaper to to, to run but I guess at this point, so early in the V6 turbo hybrid life cycle, the existing manufacturers had poured enormous expense and time and effort into mastering the complex MGUH and how the power unit worked as a whole. And it was just there was just too much going on to to be willing to just drop that and put it on the shelf immediately. But now, I guess the selfish interests of the existing manufacturers can now be aligned in some way to F1's interest, which is cut costs, get rid of the most complex part of the the V6 turbo hybrids, and then use that to get a new manufacturer in. And that is where I think this story is particularly interesting because when you've got Red Bull and it looks like the Volkswagen Group politically aligned, that isn't just because they both want to get the MGUH dropped there's it does look like there's something properly afoot there in the in in the form of a a genuine collaboration for for the new engine rules which is very exciting there's also the 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 battle in terms of the potential breaks for a new manufacturer because Mercedes certainly see it this way and I think Ferrari and Renault are of a similar mind that if the MGUH is dropped which they can live with keeping going with because they've done a lot of work with it over the years they kind of think it's a little bit of a double kind of blow, should we say, that if they allow the H to be dropped to help Volkswagen in, Volkswagen shouldn't then get a load of dispensations as well to help them catch up. You know, there's talk about extra dyno time, that kind of thing, and potentially greater financial allowances because they're trying to keep the costs of these uh, these new engines down. So when Toto Wolff referred to uh, that they will drop the H subject to certain compromises. That seems to be the battleground. And there seems to be a suggestion that perhaps FIA and F1 as a whole are a little bit more keen to drop the MGUH and have the concessions to get VW in. And obviously the existing manufacturers are not quite so keen on that. So I think that that's going to play out at, at, at some level. What do you think the wider impact of this is going to be, Mark? It's interesting because I think another part of you, – you've addressed the cost issue, but – Another part of it was just how um, difficult it was to come in from scratch and make a competitive engine. And I think the the Honda experience was pretty horrific for Honda and for F1 because it said to any other aspiring um, Formula One engine manufacturer, this is really difficult and you're going to look really bad for a few seasons before you get the hang of it. 
Um, and I think that the, the H is probably the main reason why it was so complex. So there was a, a desire um, also to be rid of it for that reason, so that the um, any would-be manufacturers um, weren't risking quite so much to their reputation. But in terms, so it, it looks as though there's only going to be one um, new manufacturer. It'll be the Volkswagen Group, um, whatever label they put on it. But um, I think the implications of that, in terms of political power, I think we're already seeing. Um, uh, I think we're, we're seeing a lessening of um, Mercedes's political clout and uh, its ties with Williams are becoming looser. And we saw that, I think, with the, um, the, the, the sort of tip of the iceberg of that was the recruitment of Alex Alban to Williams because Toto was quite, you know, as, as recently as the, the Dutch Grand Prix, he was quite frank in his assessment of, He's a little bit reluctant to see that happen because he's a Red Bull associated driver and he's going to be getting a lot of experience with the Mercedes power unit, which potentially that information can go straight back to Red Bull. So in the um, uh, former days, that that re- that move would really have been – that would have been that really because, um, you know, in terms of the, the association between the, the customer and the, the power unit supplier, and yet it went ahead anyway. And uh, I think that's reflective of the um, the power behind the scenes already shifting, and with with Volkswagen coming in probably with some Red Bull association, and uh, with Williams not necessarily uh, seeing its future with, with Mercedes. It's it's uh, quite open uh, that has options and in, in going forward after current Mercedes contract ends. So yeah, I think we're going to be, see a little bit of a sea change in terms of who who holds the, um, you know, the the political clout. I think it's going to be shared a bit more evenly, and I think yeah, we're we're just seeing the beginning of that. And it's worth noting that that Williams Mercedes engine contract runs to the end of twenty twenty five, and it looks like the next generation engines will be twenty twenty six. So that lines up quite nicely, doesn't it? Yeah, there's there's a lot about this that is being played quite cleverly with Red Bull. The beauty of the Powertrains project was always that when they build their in-house engine, it's something that could be very, very, very easily retrofitted to be a a, a manufacturer affiliation. It could be something that another manufacturer comes in and puts its name to, whether that's just purely by then paying for the whole thing, whether it's technology share, infrastructure share, whatever it is. It was always brilliant because it gave red bull such flexibility on 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 that side and it's and it a red bull volkswagen tie up on the next generation f1 engine just makes perfect sense for 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 each party it slashes the cost of a new uh it slashes the cost of a new engine project it means that you know whether it's audi or 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 porsche or maybe one of the other brands maybe we're overlooking one and it's going to be it's going to be something else that nobody's thought of i doubt it they don't have to create everything absolutely from scratch. And there's there's bound to be some kind of technology, some kind of infrastructure, some kind of facility within the, uh, whether it's, again, Porsche or Audi or whoever, they're going to have access to something that Red Bull don't have access to. Red Bull, with their powertrains facility in Milton Keynes, are going to be building a bunch of stuff that the Volkswagen Group doesn't have access to. So there's it it, it just... It just makes makes total sense, and I do think all the other manufacturers buy into the importance of getting another another brand in. Um, we know F one and the FAA have made this an absolute 
cornerstone of the next generation engine. Do you remember when they put out, I think it was it five objectives, I think, something like that last year, um, about what they wanted to achieve from the new power unit and getting a new manufacturer in is something that has been mentioned time and time again from the start. So it was always likely the F1 and the FIA were going to push for a resolution that meant we make the concessions we need to make to appeal to to this brand. And now it makes even more sense that from the very beginning, Red Bull, while it all, while it was always logical for them to be pushing for simpler engines, lose the MGUH because they're coming in at a disadvantage and then the other manufacturers don't have a head start, it now also makes sense why Red Bull was saying, well, I don't think F1 should be beholden to the views of any party on the outside that's not actually committed because we're just going to waste our time and, and, and this. All those comments from Christian Horner were almost certainly being made knowing that actually this wasn't going to be a waste of time because the main party that they're talking to, these representatives from Audi and Porsche, there's actually a very good chance they'll they'll come into F1 because they it looks like they're going to come in with Red Bull. So I I think I think sometimes Red Bull uh, don't necessarily play the play the political game as well as others. But actually, what's going on at the moment? I think they're I think they're setting themselves up really well for a project that many probably thought a few months ago was going to be beyond them. And it makes perfect sense for Volkswagen because. Red Bull has created all this infrastructure, the powertrains company. It's so much less of a commitment. Even if they're spending a huge sum of money, they aren't having to set aside a factory and get a load of people on their payroll in the same way to do it. So it makes such a difference in terms of getting that that deal over the line. And, and who knows, it could work really well for their brands because if they've got a couple of uh, engine supply deals, you could have a Red Bull Porsche and a and a Williams Audi or something. If you if you really wanted to, they could start. Well, they've got six or seven brands that are probably uh, suitable for uh, for for F one from that perspective. So yeah, that that's a that's a great way of, uh, of doing things. But it it is fascinating how it changes the political landscape as well because you were saying Mark about the Mercedes power, and it does feel like a sea change, doesn't it? Because Mercedes has been hugely influential, but obviously that team is less Mercedes as well than it than it used to be. It's now only a one third owner. There's there's three major owners now of that team, so it's it's a slightly different situation for them. So it does feel like, in every way, F one's moving on into a, a new phase and a new political battleground. That it could make some of those people in the middle, your kind of Alpines, quite influential, couldn't it? Because they could be the swing vote. Yeah, they could. They could. Uh, it'd be the the, the centre of gravity almost, couldn't they? Um, Possibly uh, Ferrari as well, um, although they they never lack political clout. But yeah, uh, it, it's it, I, I think it's a good thing. I think spreading spreading the influence through through more manufacturers. It, I think it's it's always a good thing um, because uh, you, you get less chance of, of of one being dominant and bulldozing their way through things. Yeah, very much so. And having having four manufacturers, I think, just makes it much much better in terms of that uh, in terms of that balance, which is a which is a positive thing. And I, I guess then the big question will be, can Volkswagen and Red Bull actually produce a good enough engine? It's, it's very, very hard to say, isn't it, Scott? Because we don't know exactly what the engine regulations will be. They're probably not going to be revolutionary in terms of the, the the technology, the engine hardware itself, but there's all sorts of stuff going on with synthetic fuels, et cetera, that, that make it a really rich scene to mine in terms of finding performance. Yeah, it will be interesting to see exactly how that, plays out but i think what's in their fate what will be a defining factor will probably 
probably be exactly how much of Honda's IP Red Bull's allowed to take over because it's all well and good agreeing a contract that allows you to run the the Honda engines and produce the Honda engines for the next few years and they'll obviously have all the access all the information they need to access to be able to run and maintain those engines but I think that's quite different to having the information you need to to design some elements of that engine uh, so for example um will honda actually disclose the full extent of the cylinder technology that they're using because i know that honda are quite proud of the stuff that's actually going on within within the v6 so if if they let's say for argument's sake they lift the lid completely on everything they've done to get their engine to where it is now in 2021 which is a mercedes beating engine we can see that it's very clear not to say that they're miles better or that they're even better, but it's clearly an engine capable of beating Mercedes. There's, there's not, there's, if there's a deficit or an advantage there, as near as makes no difference. Um, if they tell Red Bull the, and let's say Porsche for for argument's sake, if they tell them exactly how they've done it and they give them permission to replicate certain areas of this, if that's if that if if there's an element of carryover there and they're able to do that, that's a huge head start for Red Bull powertrains and it's whatever partnership it has if they are blocked from doing that and there's certain things they have to discover for themselves that's more complicated so i'll be interested to see i think we're going to know pretty soon exactly what the terms are of the um the the honda takeover project at red bull next year on the engine side um but of course the other thing is this is all going to happen if they drop the mguh which is going to make that entire process much easier. The MGOH is such a complicated part of the energy recovery system, and you guys might be able to sort of explain it better than better than I can. But in terms of exactly what you're able to do in in maximising the um, the capacity of the battery using the, the the turbocharger effectively, because in the past Andy Cow, the former Mercedes engine chief, I think described the MGOH as basically I think the word he, the phrase he used was the the most marvelous anti lag system. Because you can use the uh, MGUH to to spin up the, the 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 turbo and basically not and not have to worry about the usual problems that come with um with, with an engine that has a turbo in it. So the MGUH it's also plays a massive part in drivability for for, for the same reason. Um, and obviously from a selling point side on the corporate side, it creates incredible thermal efficiency. But just from a pure performance point of view and the way the engines work. This is why those existing manufacturers are saying we have to develop a whole new engine as well for for 2026 if you get rid of the H because it changes the the the, the structure of the, the PU as a whole. But at least Red Bull will be doing that from scratch, not having to make the MGUH work, which is it's just such a difference in terms of an engineering exercise. It's enormous. Yeah, and as, as Mark mentioned... The H was the biggest weakness of quite a few weaknesses for Honda when it first came in because it's got this huge potential, but it's very, very uh, difficult to, to get it working to its maximum uh, to its maximum potential because it, it's so complicated in the way it works and you need to make it reliable, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But of course, if the H goes, there does need to be the compromise, doesn't there? Volkswagen and Red Bull obviously want the extra leniency to develop, etc. And just as you said, Scott, the existing manufacturers, Ferrari, Mercedes, Renault, will be saying, well, hang on a minute, we've still got to do a new engine as well. So it's a new engine for everyone. We've taken the H out to help 
Volkswagen and Toto Wolf have specifically said, we're willing to drop the H to facilitate uh, Volkswagen coming in, provided it's that that sort of level playing field, effectively. So this is the interesting problem. Formula One might want to ram it through and just say, yeah, drop the H, fine. But if F1's existing manufacturers, who've been devoted to Formula One for a long time, Renault, Ferrari and Mercedes, start threatening to pull out or something because of this, then it gets complicated. How do you see all that playing out, Mark? Is it From what I hear from the meetings they had at the weekend, it's not Although the print, the in principle agreement is there on the H, there still seems to be a little bit of a gap there that might not necessarily have a have a good ending, shall we say? I think um, it's it's just down to horse trading, as you say, about um, what what the terms exactly are. And uh, I think there's enough general consensus that the thing will happen, and it's just a little bit of uh, negotiation left in in terms of who gets what, and so. No, I, I think it will go ahead, and I, I don't think anybody's making the sort of noise that suggests they're deeply upset about it. I think it's just there'll be the usual. Uh, let's see what we can get from this. Um, let's see what we can get in return for agreeing to this, and what what the deals are in terms of negotiation. I don't think it's going to be anything more than that. Uh, I think then you get to the question of um, okay, if we're dropping the H, what are we doing um, in terms of power? You know, are we? Um, are we going to up? Are we going to up the the fuel flow? Are we going to change the engine capacity size, etc.? So, uh, what we're doing with the turbos, th- those things, I think, um, will also come into play. So, yeah, I I, I think we're going to see um, quite a uh, maybe a less adventurous, technically adventurous power unit than we've had since 2014 in concept. But I think we're going to end up with something which is pretty effective and uh, which will be easier to equalize between the different manufacturers. Obviously, up to now, one of the reasons that Mercedes has been such a big proponent of it is, I mentioned that thermal efficiency before, because you've got these new, these current F1 power units are above 50% thermal efficiency, which is so far beyond what the engines that are in production cars uh, are capable of doing and it's a real sort of halo bit of the the hybrid engines technology the problem is it doesn't really have any application outside of formula one and though last year Merck said that uh, they were going to be adapting the technology for part of their future sort of AMG range um, but it is something that is it's very specialized and uh, the other manufacturers don't seem to really see how it will be applied um in a sort of mass consumer way so it, it's 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 a bit awkward because it's it's part of the overall system that satisfies that sustainability element but it's it satisfies it in a way that's basically of no use to anybody so I think that's one of the reasons why it's now shifting. That and the fact that obviously F1 and the FIA in particular, they're um, they're backing so-called sustainable fuels to be a really core part of the the sustainability push in the long term. The idea of being able to create fuels that are uh, I don't really know the best way to put it because there are so many different ways to do it and you can interpret it in a different way, but supposedly environmentally friendly ways of fueling the cars basically. And that way people like Christian Horner have said before is why not make these fuels the heart of the sustainability push. And then you can go back to a simpler engine. So it's it, it I think it's going to, it'll be interesting to see 
which of the automotive manufacturers consider that to be sufficient and which of them feel that F1 needs to be pushing boundaries more to, to justify involvement. But I do think we have reached the point with the H where no one's denying it's a phenomenal bit of technology. But at a time when F1 is trying to manage costs and find the most sensible way of having a, having that uh, sustainability factor, I think the H has just run its course effectively. Yeah, it's always a slightly uh, esoteric thing. And yeah, the, the synthetic fuels direction is definitely the uh, an interesting way to go. Although synthetic fuels and renewable fuel, all these things, it's quite a broad church. And there's quite a few of them that, when you look into them, do still involve, at some point along the process, smashing up hydrocarbons. So uh, yeah, a complicated one. But we're some way away from the generation of engine where you can have, I don't know, hydrogen fuel cells or that kind of thing. That's for, uh, that's for down the line. But yeah, interesting to see how it will play out. And uh, I think I'm inclined to agree. Everyone will be pragmatic. Volkswagen coming in is good for absolutely everyone so i'm sure agreement will be reached well mark let's move away from engines and on to driver talk aston martin at the back end of last week confirmed sebastian vettel and lance stroll will continue as its drivers next season no surprise there but how well do you think that partnership has worked so far pretty well i think um you know, given that the car wasn't as competitive as everybody hoped when that deal uh, was entered into because of the, the way the regulation change for 21 affected the low-rate cars, and that was one of two, two of the low, one of the two low-rate cars. Um, so it's not as competitive last year's, as last year's pink Mercedes, um, which would have made it a much more interesting prospect um, watching Vettel um, a bit further up the grid regularly, but on the occasions when it has been working well, I think Vettel's um, shown that you know uh, last year was um, not you know because he's that, that twenty twenty season at Ferrari was pretty disastrous for him. And the the year before nineteen, he was you know quite respectable against Charles Leclerc, but twenty was really des- desperately poor. And I think he's bounced back from that in terms of his personal performance. And I was only a little sort of um, delay on on a, a wheel change that uh, lost him the Hungarian Grand Prix. He was, you know, he's, he was in fine shape there. He's in fine shape in Monaco. He's good at Baku. Um, still, there's been the occasional, you know, um, silly error with the Silverstone spin with with Dyson with Alonso springs to mind. Uh, but yeah, it, it's it's enabled Seb to sort of come back and prove that last year was um, was was not part of a horrible downward spiral. Uh, Aston has uh, you know got the services of this guy, which not not only his performance but his profile, uh, which is very very important to uh, Lawrence as he tries to develop the whole brand of Aston Martin, you know the the, the business of the of the, the, the road cars. I think that's um, you know, even even if you could have had a driver of comparable performance, but nowhere near the uh, prestige or profile, it, it wouldn't have done the job for him. So yes, I think it's worked well. I think um, there's been a little bit of niggle sometimes between Seb and Lance on track, uh, most recently at Monza. Uh, but on the whole, I think it's it's it's. A, a good baseline it's not it's not been a, the dream start that you might have wished for but it's i think it's been a positive one yeah certainly the problem there has obviously been the the, the pace of the car and yeah i'd agree vettel's peaks have been uh have been pretty strong uh, it's an interesting one because of course there is the lance stroll question we all know why lance stroll is there 
you know, he's he's doing he's fine. He's perfectly capable Grand Prix driver. What do you make of that, of that situation, Scott? Do you think that Stroll is on that trajectory to be the regular Grand Prix winning driver that uh, that Lawrence Stroll ho- hopes he's going to be, or do you just see him as a handy backup to to Vettel now? Uh, the latter, and this is the problem: the the way that that team is set up, and the fact that Lance is there for the foreseeable means that ironically because that is just simply the strategy that's been gone for ironically Vettel the the lead driver is the is is really the problem because you need in that situation to have the lead driver be someone utterly dependable top class on form far more often than not because you're not gonna it's not a Ferrari situation or a what McLaren hopes to have more regularly with Daniel Ricciardo and Lando Norris it's the risk is that you do end up with a very clear divide between the number one and the number two and with Seb it's just next year I think is just a really important year unless he's already made his mind up that he's just going to do one more year and then call it quits I, I think next year is quite quite important for him because the benefit he had in this time around in taking up his option for 2022 is first that there was an option already there. The team didn't have any alternatives and are happy with him. So they were happy to take up their side, but Seb delayed on his. Uh, he, he had all the strength in that in that negotiation process on whatever he was sort of like maybe angling for. Next year, I just don't think he's going to have the same thing. There's going to be far more drivers on the market. I think there are potentially going to be drivers who match or exceed him in terms of what they can offer the team as well. So unless, so if Seb wants to continue beyond 2022, I think we're going to need him to be proving next year he's the colossus that Aston Martin expects him to be on track. That is that is quite important because otherwise, you're going to be looking at that situation and saying, well, we can't afford to have our lead driver who we're hanging all of our hopes on and paying a pretty handsome salary to, I'm sure, be someone who's, you know, got a couple of podiums in him over the course of the year in a bit of a giant killing performance, but otherwise is near as makes no difference, only fractionally faster than the other guy who nobody really thinks is a world champion in the making. So that's not I'm not I'm not writing off Seb or saying that, you know, he's been rubbish and that Aston Martin's made the wrong choice. It's just because the car hasn't been as competitive as any anybody wanted it to be this year, I just don't think we've really seen what Vettel's capable of in that environment. So I think 2022 is really big, especially because it's not just Aston Martin judging Vettel; it's Vettel just in, judging Aston Martin. There aren't any, there aren't the same excuses that exist for this year, uh, next year. Um, okay, there won't. This car won't be the product of their big, massive, expensive new factory. Won't have all of the the infrastructure feeding into it, but it will be a much, it's, it should be a much more competitive proposition than the 2021 car that's been carried over and has obviously been impacted by the floor regs. So yeah, I, I honestly think make or break next year for the Aston Vettel Alliance. I think there's a lot to discover about the importance of each to to, to the other going into next season. And there'll also be a lot more alternatives available as well for for 2023 as options if it if it doesn't go well so yeah i think both sides i agree do have something to still a little bit to prove to each other next year and i guess vettel if if they don't hit the ground relatively 
briskly running, shall we say, will think it's it's not going to happen quickly enough because obviously all the new facilities, the I mean, the wind tunnel they're building, that's a thirty six month project for that building. That's the second building that they're building. They recently had their their groundbreaking ceremony. Their their primary building will be an eighteen month one. That's going to have all the design offices and and everything in it. So th- this is still a team that's in the process of becoming, as Lawrence Stroll likes to put it, the kind of the ideal cost cap era team so 2022 is a nice opportunity for them but it's not it's not perhaps the opportunity for that team so interesting to see uh, how they progress but Scott another team that uh, you briefly mentioned in passing there was McLaren we talked about their breakthrough win in our Italian Grand Prix review podcast but there is that bigger picture there so do you think McLaren is a team that can take that stride next year and be a, a regular win contender or perhaps even have a tilt for the for the title under those new rules or do you think it too needs a little longer uh i think it needs a little longer i'd be surprised if it vaults immediately into championship contention in 2022 i may maybe maybe a bit more realistic in the interim is that it will be it can still be best of the rest but maybe have you know, like how Monza, for example, it wasn't just it wasn't a fluky win from McLaren. It was a track where they targeted of being competitive at. The package worked really well there. They did everything right. They were genuinely competitive. They took advantage of a few things over the course of the weekend that put them in a good position. But they won that Grand Prix on merit. So maybe the target for next year has to be to have you know two or three events like that rather than one where all of the factors line up in your favour. But I can't remember if we've talked about this on the podcast before or not. Um, we've we've done so many so far this year. But one of the things that is very interesting is that McLaren do expect to have their own infrastructure deficit until the 2024 car. They've got obviously major capital expenditure product projects going on at the moment with the the build of their own uh, new wind tunnel and driver in loop simulator, and the the sim will come on online earlier than the 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 new tunnel. But they won't. But but both collectively, they won't be feeding into the design until the 2024 car. So that's two years of the. That's two full seasons of the the new era that has to be spent using the facilities that McLaren have clearly identified as aren't fit for purpose or don't match their their, their ambitions. Otherwise, they wouldn't be upgrading them, would they? So they've got to persevere with with this effectively substandard for what they're setting the standard at, equipment, which means ultimately they are going to be compromised with the development of the 22 and 23 car. And McLaren are quite confident that because they know those tools so well and they know what they can do well and they know what they struggle with, they can manage around that as best as possible, still do a good job. And I'm absolutely sure they will. But we're talking about Formula One and fighting for a championship against organisations like Mercedes and Red Bull and Ferrari, of course, which is going to be massively more competitive. So I just think it's a bit, you think of how far they've come in the last uh, three years. Um, I think it's a bit unrealistic. I think a chap to, to think they'll be title contenders next year, I just think is a, a step too far at this stage. The thing that's encouraging is all decisions and the moves they're making are in the right direction. All you can do is do that, work step by step, and then if you keep getting better, you'll you'll get there in the end. But it, it's an interesting question, Mark, isn't it? Because... We say, well, McLaren maybe needs a little bit longer with its infrastructure uh, upgrades. Aston Martin might take a little bit longer because it's still growing. Obviously, Ferrari is then the obvious one, but they've been working on various things there. New driver and loop simulator has, has sort of just come come online properly. 
and being used, and they've changed a lot of things at the factory. So that there's a lot of asterisks against all of these teams that we're hoping will will join that that battle at the front. Yeah, absolutely. And in the case of Ferrari, is the power unit question as well. They've got a new power unit coming, so you know they've got a big gap to make uh, make up there. So yeah, it, it, there are asterisks, but. Um, you know, at this point, you'd you, you, you're optimistic, aren't you? You're optimistic that things will, um, everybody will get there and achieve their potential, and that that potential ends up being under these regulations very similar with the same sort of headroom for everyone. And yeah, I think um, Ferrari, they, they they've got too much depth of of ability and talent and resource there that. They're not going to be suddenly nowhere. You'd expect them to be a contender. Um, whether that's better than Mercedes or Red Bull is, is probably a bit of a stretch, but who knows? With a new, completely new set of regulations, it's possible that you know somebody finds a, a tweak that hasn't been discovered elsewhere and it gives them a bit of a head start for a while. It, it, that, that could just as easily be Ferrari as anyone else. Um, looking at McLaren, what, what I find particularly encouraging about McLaren this year is that they've gone their own way on the, on this car. It's um, they, they've not just sort of followed the trend of the, the fastest car and sort of been trying to keep up with it. They've, they've done something a little bit different with key parts, like the diffuser was different at the car's launch, uh, the development of the car, you know, it's rear wing end plates, it's floor, all, all these things are very, very uh, individualistic and they're working. They're, they're so they they've got their own idea about what makes this car work, and they they're following it, and it it is responding. So that's um, I think quite encouraging in terms of um, you know how how well their their factory and their their people are working. So yeah, I think I'm, I'm optimistic for next year. I, I think it will be very very close, and also even even if even if there is a little bit of uh, performance difference between say the the fastest car and a, and a, the fourth fastest car or the fifth fastest car the idea of these regs is that you won't be able to find such a big gap even 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 with you know a, a deeper resource the the idea of the the regulations that the the bodywork regs have been configured in such a way that there isn't as much to find there so you know i think all in all there's a lot to be um, optimistic about for next year. Yeah, and I think you made a very good point about the McLaren going their own way with that car. James Key, the technical director, who only started there in uh, 2019, I think it was March time he, he started work, he had a very, very clear agenda for exploring various concepts aero-wise and trying to kind of catch up on that underlying aero science that the, that the very top teams have been working on. So that's really encouraging that they're, they're reaching out into kind of new territory, should we say, and they seem to be understanding it because that that's the thing that translates. The car itself doesn't translate so much to next year, but your your methodologies, your understanding, etc., that does translate. So that, that's what gives me optimism about that team. Well, let's have a quick look ahead to Sochi in this weekend's Russian Grand Prix to finish off. Mark, you didn't predict McLaren winning at Monza, although you were absolutely right that Mercedes had the quickest car there. So what are you expecting this time? I Sochi is quite an interesting one because historically, very much a Mercedes track, um, very much Valtteri Bottas track actually. But it, it, it yeah, it, it's there's something about the, 
that combination of, of curves that um, really s- seems to suit Mercedes. But I don't know. I think um, looking at it, that the, it should be smack in the middle of the um, the Red Bulls range. And I think historically, if you're saying it's been a Mercedes track, it hasn't it hasn't had to compete against a Red Bull that's as strong as this before. Uh, now we saw uh, we went to Hungary and the Red Bull was nowhere, which was a bit of a surprise. And it had it looks as though there was just too big a corner speed spread there for them to be able to find the ideal setup between getting the front tires switched on and then get, getting the you know, the balance of grip through all the different speed corners. Maybe something like that will happen, but I, I don't think, I, I have a suspicion that Sochi is going to be very close um, between between the two. Um, I don't think we're going to see a, a repeat of McLaren. as uh, Monza form there. I think that was very much low drag. Uh, and, and, you know, the, the, the importance of low drag was enhanced there, and that was... Uh, reason for McLaren's strength. But, uh, yeah, I, I actually think it's going to be quite close between Mercedes and Red Bull here. And when you look ahead to the tracks coming up after that, there isn't really... A, I, I can't really see any that are going to heavily favour Mercedes after this this one, possibly. Um, after that, they look a bit more like uh, Red Bull tracks, um, particularly Mexico. So... Let's see. I mean, we've got all sorts of what ifs, and in terms of engine penalties and stuff like that. But yeah, and incidents and second drivers and all those things. But just in terms of how the cars might stack up, I, I think it's looking more for me. I, I, I still think Red Bull has the the quicker package, and if it can match Mercedes at Sochi. And I think it um, it looks very good for them for the remainder of the season. I think discovering at Sochi uh, whether the um, the sort of almost flipping of the ERS strength of the two power units this year has sort of continued will be interesting because I remember last year um, Red Bull I think and I think Red Bull were quite hamstrung last year just because we we had so many instances of the the Honda power unit clipping. At the end of long straights, just it didn't quite have its deployment absolutely nailed down. We know that that's actually been been pretty good for them for them this year. And the Mercedes, especially early on, were complaining about it quite vocally, not having it where they wanted it to be. Um, there's obviously power deployment, uh, the ERS deployment at Sochi is really important. The, that long, long, long run at the start is obviously huge, but actually the back straight that's not straight. It's pretty long, and that was where I think the you know you can you can risk running out. So I'd be very interested to see. Just I, I don't it might not necessarily that alone is obviously not going to turn Red Bull into a Mercedes beater, but it is a it is a key weakness that they've had before that has hurt them at this this track that shouldn't be there anymore this year. But I just wanted to pick up on something that Mark pointed out about the lack of uh, clear cut places where you think okay yeah that's going to be a Mercedes uh, track. Um, they. They, I think they have to win in in Russia because they have they just for for a, quite a few times now this season they've not they've not taken advantage of the places where they've had the chance to do some damage. Whereas Red Bull more often than not have done that. If you, you think back to 
Uh, even Baku at the, at the restart with Hamilton's error there, that was a that was an that was a huge one. Obviously, did end up winning it at Silverstone, but then seemed to have the the, the quickest car at, in the exact conditions of Hungary. That didn't get converted into maximum points either. Um, obviously, Spa was then a bit uh, weird with the with obviously the way the weather went, so they, they lost a bit of ground there. But then they quite clearly had the, what Lewis was on pole by tenths of a second, wasn't it? It wasn't just like edging Max at Monza, and they've managed to, he managed to turn that into a loss over the weekend because Max got him in the in the sprint race. So for a team and a driver who who have been the most impressive thing about them during their period of domination was. They just they they left so little on the table, and I know that that is um, I'm going to say easier, but I don't mean it's easy. It's easier to do when you don't have regular competition. But it's just that unbelievable intensity to be that good for that long is what was always so impressive. And now they've got into this situation this year, and there are other factors involved. Obviously, um, had Bottas not skittled a bunch of cars at Turn One in Hungary, for example. There's every chance that would have been a straightforward Grand Prix, and Lewis could have won it from start to finish. So that, and obviously at Monza, many people will argue that um, you know, Lewis wasn't responsible for ultimately ending the, the the race with Max's car on top of him because people blame Max for that for that incident. So I know there are various factors. This isn't Merck just throwing stuff away for the sake of it, but I just seeing. A bit of a weakness, to be honest, in terms of actually how they're um, um, carrying out their weekends. Lewis ultimately got a bad start in the sprint at Monza, which set him up. It's the second time this year he's had uh, the he's been the quickest in qualifying, and then the sprint has been his undoing, and he's and he's lost track position. So it's very interesting, and, and I get the impression that Merck know that as well. Sometimes when you hear guys like Andrew Shovlin talk. You know, their focus isn't ultimately on their bit of bad luck after this weekend. It's we know there's still stuff we need to be doing better. So I I think so I think I think Sochi is quite a big big test of that because if they don't win there and Max comes out of this race leading the championship, I agree with Mark. I don't look at the rest of the calendar and think that is a place where Merck are then gonna take chunks out of that points lead. So I I think a a reasonable amount of pressure at the very least. It's also worth noting we might not get a definitive answer on the relative pace from Sochi simply because I'm not sure if people have noticed this. There was there was a, a small incident at Monza which has led to Verstappen getting a three-place grid penalty. So even if he doesn't take the power unit penalties, he's going to be in a, a potentially in a in a less advantageous position. So if he takes the power unit penalty, he probably won't go all out in qualifying. So we might not see the pace there. And there's a few little permutations related to that. But you could also see a scenario where if the car if the Red Bull is genuinely quick and can be fastest in qualifying, he could end up starting fourth. Maybe even we could have a, an Austin 2012 situation whereby uh, Red Bull opens up Perez's gearbox if he's qualified fourth fastest or something to move Verstappen up a place. And he, he could conceivably start third, which isn't a bad place to start. And so she says lots of little uh, possibilities there about, about what happens. Although I can't help but think it's a good time to take that extra power unit though. Yeah, I think I think you're right, Ed. I think that is the the perfect place to do it. It gets it out of the way, and as you say, that's the the of, of all the remaining tracks. That's probably the one where you don't want to be on pole. You want you want to be probably third is the best place to be. If they could get if they could get somehow uh, on on the correct side of that uh, grid and not be too far away, 
um, it's game on, I think. Yeah, very interesting to see uh, how it goes. But yeah, that three-place grid drop could uh, could swing the balance in favour of, of the, the power unit change. Of course, the timing of that is uh, is important in the weekend as well. So yeah, let, let's see how it goes and let's see if Bottas can pull off uh, another fine performance. He was certainly performing well at Monza. Well, thanks very much, Scott Mitchell and Mark Hughes. Do head to therace.com and don't forget the hyphen. Plenty to read there as we work our way towards the Russian Grand Prix. Check out our sister podcasts, including the Race IndyCar podcast, MotoGP, Formula E, Bring Back V10s as well. Plenty to listen to there and have a look at our YouTube channel. We are now going to turn our attention to Russia, so we'll be back soon with everything you need to know from Sochi. (laughs) 